Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, What's New in the Treatment of Lung Cancer, and this is part one of a two-part series. And uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as lung cancer organizations. And I just want to really mention the lung cancer organizations that are collaborating on today's program. Um, so Free Me from Lung Cancer, Lung Cancer Alliance, Lung Cancer Research Foundation, and Longevity Foundation. And I really want to thank them all for their support and their actual um, helping spread the word about the program. And because of that collaboration and because of your interest in this program today, which is really a very important program, right after the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, um, we have on the call today over 422 participants. And you come from all over the United States, from both um, rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Argentina, Canada, and United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by AbbVie and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, just the best of the best, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Bob Lee. Dr. Lee is attending medical oncologist, thoracic oncology and early drug development service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Lee is going to present an overview of lung cancer, including standard of care, chemotherapy, targeted cancer therapies, and new treatment approaches, the role of precision medicine in informing treatment options, and managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's really my great privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you to uh, Cancer Care for uh, providing uh, me with this opportunity to share with their patients and their families and caregivers um, what the latest uh, update on uh, the treatment of lung cancer. Uh, firstly, I'd like to begin by saying that by uh, when we refer to lung cancer, we're talking about cancers that arise from the lung. Uh, as opposed to cancers that may spread from a different organ into the lung, and that is lung metastasis. So today we'll focus on primary uh, lung cancers. Uh, strictly speaking, we're referring to a term called bronchogenic carcinoma. That's uh, uh, cancers arriving, arising from the airways of the, uh, of the bronchial tree uh, that, that fill the breathing tubes of the lung. Um, classically, there's a... Uh, uh, is important classification of non-small cell uh, versus small cell uh, lung cancer. Uh, that's because the uh, biology is very different and the treatment approaches are also different for the two diseases. Uh, small cell lung cancers comprise about 13% of lung cancers, whereas non-small cell is the predominant type uh, at 87%. 
And within non-small cell lung cancer, there is a histologic subtypes, we call it, that what they look like uh, under the microscope, they also classified into adenocarcinomas, squamous cell carcinomas, uh, and also a mixed group called large cell carcinomas. And that's also, uh, that's all dependent upon how they look like under the microscope. But now new research suggests that um, they also behave quite distinctly uh, in, in those, uh, uh, between those groups of uh, cancers. In terms of treatment, we uh, uh, devise our treatment plan uh, according to the stage of the, uh, of the cancer upon diagnosis. Uh, there's early stage cancers and late stage cancers, and, uh, and classically we we have the so-called tumor node metastasis (TNM) classification into stage one, two, three, four for non-small cell lung cancer. And generally speaking, stage one, two, three are all potentially curable, and we would divide, uh, use a multidisciplinary approach uh, using a variety of uh, ways. And tools uh, including surgery, radiation therapy, uh, and medicine treatment, uh, which is also called systemic ther therapy with chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, to maximize the chance of cure uh, for stage uh, one to three non-small cell lung cancers. Not all of the tools are needed for a particular patient, but we would consider all three uh, in the unique circumstance. Uh, when the disease uh, becomes stage four, that is if the lung tumor has spread uh, to the other lung or outside of the lung, uh, that is termed stage four. And that's still a very common presentation because lung cancers are often detected late. They don't cause symptoms when they are early. And when it, by the time that um, patients present with uh, symptoms of uh, worsening cough, weight loss, pain, uh, uh, they usually uh, have, they often do have more advanced form of disease. Uh, and and this, even though stage four is uh, lung cancer is a terrible diagnosis, it is, uh, from my oncology perspective, not the end of the world. There is, There are effective treatments uh, available and new ones being developed uh, every month. Uh, so there's definitely hope. And we, in stage four disease, we primarily use medicine treatment or systemic therapy that's given in the form of an intravenous injection or in the form of a pill that would target cancer cells everywhere in the body uh, wherever they go. And uh, that could be in the form of a uh, chemotherapy or an immunotherapy uh, or targeted therapy again. And we still use um, the expertise of surgery and radiation therapy uh, on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. There are certain uh, types of cancer and, and location of cancer metastasis that may require a very dedicated local uh, therapy approach to that one spot of problematic cancer. And sometimes it may still mean cut it out or use high-dose radiation to get rid of it. But we know when, when the cancer is, is uh, spread beyond the one lung, uh, it's hidden in the bloodstream or in the lymphatics. So simply by using ther local therapy alone is not enough, and hence systemic therapy or medicines play an important role. 
Now moving on to the latest in the medical treatment, and we're talking about precision medicine is the is the term for it. That is treating the patient uh, based on many factors in, individualized for the particular patient. There are tumor factors, including the cancer genetics or genomics, when we do next generation sequencing and produce a lot of data, or proteins or proteomics, the study of proteins in a, in a big way. Um, we may use those factors to influence our treatment. There are also patient factors as well, uh, including uh, the patient's age, physical condition, comorbidities, all those things need to be taken into account. And there's more research now on the tumor microenvironment, the, uh, the interplay between tumor and the host, that is the patient's body, and the interactions there that may actually help us in decide on what type of therapy work, uh, uh, works best. Today, uh, all lung cancers, in, especially non-small cell lung cancers, should undergo further testing, not just the diagnosis of cancer, but also the molecular features of this cancer, including genomics and proteomics. In the uh, and at, at, at in my practice at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we use next generation sequencing, and that's looking at hundreds of cancer-related genes, especially so-called oncogenic drivers, that are uh, frequently occurring in lung cancers that may be targeted by a pill or a, a highly effective drug, uh, we do test for those things. You don't know unless you test for it. And uh, through next generation sequencing, looking at the biopsy specimen um, from the tumor tissue. And nowadays with liquid biopsy technology, we could draw a uh, two tubes of blood and uh, use the uh, new uh, sequencing technology to isolate the tiny fragments of cancer DNA that might be shed uh, into the bloodstream. And by isolating them, we may map out the cancer genome with next generation sequencing and match the, uh, the right therapy, the right treatment for the individual patient. Uh, so that's uh, genomic sequencing, both on tissue and in blood. That's the plasma uh, circulating tumor DNA. We also use uh, proteomic testing. Uh, we do use a, a, a reflex test called immunohistochemistry to look at a immune marker called PDL1, uh, and this test will give us an indication of the uh, expression uh, in the tumor cell of this particular protein and give us an estimate of whether the tumor may respond to immunotherapy-based treatment, especially when they are highly expressed immunotherapy, like more than 50%, for example, immunotherapy uh, tends to work better than traditional chemotherapy. And uh, if they are not as highly expressed, then a combination chemo-immunotherapy strategy may be used uh, in this day and age and it's an IV drug once every three weeks. Um, the, 
so the combination of proteins uh, and uh, genes, the patient factors, uh, performance status, kidney function, liver function, all those things need to be taken into account to choose the best medicine for the particular patient. And there's not just one medicine. It's the first line of defense, the first treatment. There, may, there needs to be second strategy, third strategies, fourth strategies for the individual patient to maximize the survival uh, and quality of life outcomes for that patient. Now, moving on to the um, addressing the side effects and symptoms, this is very much an integral part of care. Side effects uh, are common, but mostly are very much manageable. Mostly are mild with modern uh, treatments. Gone are the days of routine hospital admission in order to deliver chemotherapy because they were highly toxic and we didn't even have good medicines to deal with the toxicities. So, uh, but this is a thing of the last century. Uh, patients come to my clinic still with that fear and that stigma from the last century that you're gonna, all your hair is going to fall out, you're going to be vomiting into a bucket, you're being dehydrated, having diarrhea, uh, because perhaps the patient's mother or father or a distant re a relative uh, from the older generation may have experienced that in the last century. But I can reassure you that today things are very much different. Most chemotherapies are delivered in the outpatient setting. You, you sit in a chair, you watch TV, you read the newspaper, and then within a couple hours you're done you can walk out and you go home, you can work, you can do whatever you like in most cases. The side effects of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea are usually prevented with uh, powerful antiemetics that we mix with the chemotherapy and it's given to you as part of the package. Uh, fatigue is also mitigated by the supportive medicines. We give a lot of steroids, a lot, uh, often with platinum-based chemotherapies uh, and there are also ways to adjust the dosing to minimize the side effects of fatigue. Um, Immune-related side effects can occur. They are not that common, but we do see it. And sometimes in rare instances, uh, they can be uh, very severe and sometimes can be fatal if not treated early. And we do want patients to report to the, uh, the practice uh, as soon as they develop any unusual, uncomfortable symptoms. Um, for example, difficulty breathing. That, that may be indicative of pneumonitis, inflammation of the lung. When the immune system revs up to go and attack the cancer cell, they may inadvertently um, cause a little bit of damage or inflammation around the lungs that may lead to pneumonitis, difficulty breathing, cough, etc. There could be other causes, but we always need to be very vigilant when we uh, treating a patient on immunotherapy. Most cases are easily reversed with steroids uh, to dampen down the immune system so they don't go overboard um, with the immune activation. Colitis can happen, lots of diarrhea, and we need to address that early to prevent serious colitis uh, that may require hospitalization. Uh, but most cases in the trials comparing immunotherapy and chemotherapy, uh, immunotherapy tends to overall ha has less side effects, uh, but some side effects, rare, could be rare side effects could be severe. So we do want to pr be proactive in managing these symptoms. So work with the doctor, work with your doctor and your your nurse, uh, and your practice team. Uh, but most of them could be taken care of, and symptoms may also be driven by cancer. So the cancer can cause pain, can cause shortness of breath, can cause uh, fatigue, and can, uh, you can lose a lot of weight. 
Uh, and hopefully as you respond, the patient responds to treatment, to effective treatment, those symptoms are actually in, uh, reversed and improved. And I have had patients who's, who, was very, who were very debilitated when they saw me uh, at the in first instance, rapidly losing weight, 30, 40 pounds in the, in the last couple of weeks because the cancer is so aggressive and we, we start treatment when, when, when it works. Really, the, the patients can perk up. So you might have the opposite effect after giving chemotherapy. It's not always that you're going to get very sick and, and debilitated with chemotherapy. In the, quite the contrary. Often you get chemotherapy, you suddenly gain weight, you suddenly get in more energetic because the cancer cells are getting killed. Uh, you're no longer in a wheelchair. You, you sit up and you walk and you're more energetic. Your appetite improves. Those are all good signs that the, cancers, uh, the cancer might be responding to treatment as in they, they're dying and they're shrinking. Uh, pain needs to be adequately managed with supportive medicines. We used the World Health uh, Organization ladder, WHO ladder, very classic strategy, using simple analgesia, simple pain medicines like acetaminophen or Tylenol over-the-counter, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs over-the-counter. We scale it up to weak opioids, uh, opiates like codeine or tramadol to more stronger opioids uh, such as morphine, oxycodone, fentanyl patch. And of course, we need to pay close attention to them because they can cause uh, constipation. So bowel regimens are important. Uh, but they become very, very much an integral part of care uh, for cancer patients. For The cancer pain must be dealt with because when they are dealt with, your life is better and your performance status may improve, and those are the patients who do better uh, with treatment. Um, opiate addiction is an epidemic problem around the country in general in the non-cancer setting. It is a big problem out there in the community. People take, uh, especially young people, take this to, to get a high, but I can reassure you this is a totally different indication in cancer patients. And there, we've been studying this for decades and there's zero addiction issue among cancer patients because pharmacologically, you're not taking this to get a high. You're taking this to control pain and to alleviate suffering. So neurologically, pharmacologically, it's a totally different wiring in the brain. And, um, and I reassure my patients, we have to get the pain under control. And this is really the most important indication for this class of uh, controlled substance, uh, that it does improve life and, and lives and, and we need to, uh, to work, you need, I advise you work with your treating oncologist, uh, treating physician, your palliative care uh, physician, supportive care doctor and nurses uh, on this to make sure cancer pain is, is well controlled. And I will now uh, hand back the floor uh, to my other esteemed, esteemed colleagues uh, uh, for further discussion. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. And I do want to add something to Dr. Lee's titles. Um, Dr. Lee also is from Memorial Sun Kettering um, Cancer Center. He is physician ambassador to China and Asia Pacific, Bob's International Center. So he really has uh, quite a global presence himself, and we're delighted to have him on the call. And thank you for your wonderful remarks and really setting the stage for today's program. And actually, we will, I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you. And our thank next you. speaker is Dr. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. And Dr. Rosenzweig is professor and chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, System Chair, Mount Sinai Health System. And Dr. Rosenzweig is going to present the role of radiation oncology, different types of radiation treatments, 
how clinical trials contribute to your treatment options, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Messner, and thank you for allowing me to participate in this very important uh, call. And uh, thank you, Dr. Lee, for um, explaining you know, a lot of the basics of how we treat lung cancer, because uh, that you know, helps me in my discussion, and we can uh, build on that and how we use radiation. So radiation is a type of cancer treatment, um, in addition to surgery and chemotherapy uh, and immunotherapy, where we use um, a machine that delivers radiation to the tumor. Um, and to get to the tumor, the, the radiation typically has to go through some normal tissue. So the big challenge in radiation oncology is to balance not giving too much radiation to the normal parts of the body and delivering enough radiation to the tumor itself. So just as uh, Dr. Lee explained that there are different stages of lung cancer, we use radiation very differently uh, depending on which stage the cancer is. So for early stage lung cancer, where we typically have a choice between radiation and surgery, uh, when we do use radiation, uh, because the tumors typically tend to be very small and not next to very critical structures, we're able to give a very high dose of radiation for each treatment and only do a handful of treatments, three, four, or five treatments, just depending on specific characteristics. So this has been very common for the past 10 years in radiation. It's called stereotactic body radiation therapy, or some doctors call it stereotactic ablative body radiation. It's just two terms for the same technique. And this has really revolutionized how we deliver radiation. So uh, back when I first started practicing, uh, people would have to come in literally for months to get a little bit of radiation each day. Uh, but with the stereotactic technique, it's really only a handful of visits. All the treatment can be done in about a week. Uh, it's all done as an outpatient. Uh, it's very quick. Um, it's it's uh, it's always very inconvenient to have cancer, but as far as cancer treatments go, this is about as convenient as it gets. Just a handful of outpatient appointments, and uh, this can take care of the tumor. But again, this is only for patients with uh, early stage disease where the tumor is just in the lung and hasn't spread to the lymph nodes or any other parts of the body. So in situations where the tumor involves the lymph nodes, unfortunately, giving that high dose of radiation each day would just be a little bit too much for the structures in the center of the chest to tolerate. So the structures I'm talking about would be the esophagus, which is the uh, tube which the food goes through from the mouth to the stomach, or the main breathing tube, such as the trachea or, or the two bronchuses that the, the trachea breaks off to one going to the left and one going to the right. And if you give a very high dose of radiation, those structures can be damaged. So this is a situation where we have to break the radiation up into smaller doses of radiation and spread it out over six weeks. 
Um, so much less convenient than the stereotactic, but necessary in order to do the treatment safely. And additionally, in this situation, uh, almost always the patient, the person is getting uh, chemotherapy at the same time, which can also increase the side effects, um, especially difficulty swallowing, which we were talking about uh, earlier. Uh, so that's another reason to break the treatment up into to smaller fractions uh, to make it more tolerable. And then um, the other role of radiation is when the tumor has spread to other parts of the body. And the radiation can be very helpful in controlling any symptoms uh, that that tumor might be causing. So a, a classic situation would be uh, the tumor has spread to one of the bones and it's hurting someone when they're walking or, or using we're using that limb or, or standing, and we can give a, a dose of radiation to just that spot in the bone and, and typically take care of any symptoms that that tumor might be causing. Uh, just in the past few years, um, the role of radiation in metastatic disease ha is being explored to maybe help people not just help with their symptoms, but maybe even help people live longer when the tumor has spread outside of the lung. So there's this um, phrase uh, or this word called oligometastatic disease. So this is a situation where um, there might just be a few spots of tumor outside of the lung. And the thinking is, well, if we can take care of those little spots and the tumor in the lung, maybe we can uh, help people out and you know, kind of keep the cancer at bay longer. So there have been a number of uh, studies and experiments done where either a tumor was surgically removed, so surgery on a metastatic spot, or a high dose of radiation was delivered, and it does seem to help people live longer. So this is uh, a very exciting new field within uh, cancer care where we can give um, a treatment of oligometastatic disease and seems to be helping people out. Um, and so um, there's still a lot of work to be done on how to integrate that with some of the new chemotherapies and immunotherapies that have been coming out. Uh, but it's really just another tool that we can apply to people and hopefully help them out um, um, if they need it. And um, the interesting thing is when you're treating a small spot elsewhere in the body, we can use some of the same techniques that we use for a small spot in the lung, the stereotactic radiation. So again, we're giving very uh, focused, uh, um, small number of treatments, high dose per treatment, radiation treatments to those spots, whether it be in the, the liver or, or another part of the body. Um, and there's even some feeling giving radiation like that might help immunotherapy do its job because it, the radiation can help get the immune system uh, revved up to fight the cancer. So it can be very confusing when we talk about the different technologies in radiation therapy. And uh, I'm sure some of you have seen ads or billboards for different types of radiation. And um, if you're not familiar with all the techniques, it can be very confusing. One thing to remember, it's a little bit like Coke and Pepsi. 
Um, you know, they're both, you know, excellent beverages, um, if, 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 if that's what you enjoy drinking. And um, you know, some of it is just how it's marketed and, and, and advertised. So really, there are a, a, a really a couple of different ways we deliver radiation. One is with just general conformal techniques. Um, so there's some initials out there like 3D conformal radiation or IMRT. So those are situations where we're using uh, computer modeling to deliver a, a dose of radiation just to the tumor and try to limit the radiation to other organs. Uh, then the other t then a, another type of uh, treatment is the stereotactic treatment I was talking about. That uses the same conformal techniques. The big difference with that is because we're giving such a high dose with each treatment, uh, the doctor who's doing the treatment uh, is standing there at the machine uh, when the treatment is being uh, delivered to make sure that the area that we're treating is the tumor. Because when you're only doing a few treatments, um, the importance of making sure each treatment is 100% accurate is 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 very important. So uh, we essentially get the equivalent of a CAT scan at the time of treatment. The doctor is there to make sure that it's on target, approves the treatment, and then the treatment is delivered. Um, and that's really the hallmark of uh, stereotactic radiation. There are a lot of different machines out there that deliver stereotactic radiation. Uh, they're all excellent machines on, on how to deliver it, and those that's typically where a lot of the advertising is done that can be, you know, uh, confusing if, if you're not familiar with the field. And um, I'd say the, the other type of radiation that you might hear about um, is proton radiation. So this is, um, I talked about conformal radiation, which tries to deliver the dose to just a specific region and not to other uh, areas. Proton uh, takes that uh, one step further, because it's a very, the proton beam acts in a very unique way where it delivers all the dose and then stops. Uh, so this is very helpful for for very, very specific situations. There are only 30 proton machines in the country. Uh, we just opened one up here in New York um, just last week. We had the grand opening. Um, so it's it's probably only about 5% of people who need radiation can benefit from proton radiation. So it's not something um, that everyone who needs radiation needs to to know about, but it does make the news because these are very big centers. Uh, there's always a lot of excitement around there and, and press coverage and things like that, but it's it's for very, very specific situations. Like, for example, children who have cancer tip, almost always are treated with proton radiation to try to avoid uh, their normal growing structures such as their bones uh, and, uh, and parts of their brain. Um, so that's something that you might hear about, but not used as commonly in lung cancer except for some very, um, very certain situations where, where there's a benefit. Um, I also want to discuss clinical trials um, because that's a very important a part of uh, cancer care, and it's how we figure out um, what helps and what doesn't help. So the the best type of uh, clinical trial is when there are two different treatments, and we flip a coin. If it's heads, 
you get treatment A. If it's tails, you get treatment B. And it's also good if the the patient and the doctor don't know which treatment uh, you're getting. That's called a double-blind uh, clinical trial. As you might imagine, those are very hard to do um, because um, some people don't want a flip of the coin determining, you know, how their treatment is done, and some doctors might have, you know, strong beliefs on which treatment is best. Um, so a lot of trials are really just taking existing therapies and adding something to it to see if that's helping um, and if that if that's improving things. So that's another aspect of clinical trials. Uh, pretty, pretty much anyone who's going to a cancer center, almost everyone who walks through the door, there, there, there is going to be a clinical trial that they might be eligible for. So that's certainly something I would encourage everyone to discuss with their doctor. Now, cl clinical trials are very rigorous. So uh, for example, you know, we're talking about, let's say, liver function before. You know, if you're, if you're using a new medicine and your liver function isn't, you know, within uh, a normal, you know, they might not want to uh, try it on someone because um, they're worried about the side effects. So there's a lot of uh, stringent rules on who can be on a clinical trial. Uh, but typically there is a, a trial for almost everyone who comes in and and I'd certainly encourage people to discuss that with uh, your physicians if there's any uh, trials that might be helpful for you. And, of course, trials are um, usually the first way you can get um, access to new medications or new treatment techniques, um, you know, because, you know, they're studied first before they become part of the mainstream a few years later. And finally, I just want to uh, touch upon our quality of life. And this is something that... Um, it's very important for doctors and patients to communicate together because um, it's, it's always, you know, as much as we'd like to, it's, it, we can't read the mind of everyone who we see. So if so, um, we, try, we do try to ask leading questions to, uh, for common side effects or common problems people might be having. You know, um, does it hurt you when you swallow? Does it hurt you when you walk on that leg? And it's very important for um, for people to let their doctor know what symptoms they might be having so we can figure out an, an effective treatment. Or even if we just want to monitor it and see if it's changing over time and, you know, maybe there'll be an intervention later on in, in case the problem persists or, um, or, or worsens at all. So it's, uh, it's very important to, to let us know what's happening. Um, you know, we we know these problems develop in people who are dealing with cancer. Uh, so you're not um, complaining. You're, you're you're informing us as to what's happening, and it's really going to be the only way uh, we can do things um, to help out um, or, or get the ne necessary resources um, for people going through a tough time. Uh, so thank you again very much for the opportunity uh, to speak to you, and I'll, I'll hand the microphone back to Dr. Mesner. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was so informative, and I know there are questions for you during the Q&A, and I, think, I also want to thank you for making radiation treatment understandable for everybody so they understand how things have changed and just the, the benefits of radiation treatment as well. So thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian. She's a dietitian and an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. Um, and Ms. Bidden is going to be addressing nutrition and hydration 
concerns and tips. And I'm delighted to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, nutrition and hydration um, oftentimes are, are something that is on your mind during treatment and how to fit it in changes as treatment goes forward. And um, for each person, that's going to look a little different. So working with your healthcare team is, is essential in addressing any changes or side effects that you're experiencing and helping them um, work with you on finding what's best for you. Um, not all answers are the same for each person, and so connecting with your healthcare team is essential in helping you do what's best for you. All right, so a few things to remember. Um, your diet is giving you the energy and um, the, the gas the fuel to do the things you enjoy and to keep your body functioning on top of everything that's going on with treatment. So there might be some modifications, like I said, um, during your treatment to help you improve and maintain your weight, um, improve your intake, um, tolerate things better. So some potential side effects that, it, that you may experience can include dry mouth, possibly difficulty swallowing, maybe a change in taste, a decrease in appetite, and an increase in fatigue. But during your course of treatment, your nutritional needs can actually increase. And there might be um, a discussion about using a nutritional oral supplement or finding ways to fortify foods that you eat to help you get in more calories and more protein um, whenever you're not tolerating a large volume of food. Um, one way is to do um, increased frequent meals. Sometimes just eating every couple of hours can help patients get in those calorie and protein um, requirements and maintain weight. But nutritional needs are important for you to meet because it impacts your overall health. If you have um, a problem getting in nutritional goals or your hydration, it can oftentimes result in a delay in treatment. So a dietitian is part of the team. She, can, she or he can provide you with specific calorie and protein along with fluid needs for what you're needing to have during your treatment. She can also help um, provide information on diet modifications, um, suggestions working with the diet that you need to be on to make it work for you. Um, Oftentimes, patients may think, oh, I've got weight to lose. I'm not going to worry about that. But um, one thing to be mindful of is that weight is not an indicator of nourishment in the sense of we're looking at malnutrition. Whenever you lose weight quickly um, and suddenly, oftentimes it's more muscle than fat. And muscle is what we use to give ourselves endurance, get be able to do the things that we need to do during the day. It's part of how we breathe and how we get up out of chairs. So our energy oftentimes can be affected if we lose muscle. So maintaining your weight is very important, and meeting nutritional goals to do that is important. Um, there are medications to assist with side effects, such as um, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. Take medication as your team directs you to. The sooner you communicate with your team, the better. Um, if you're experiencing specific side effects when you're eating, keep a log and record of what you ate and how it made you feel. Um, that can really make a difference when your team's working with you to help pinpoint ways to improve um, your situation. 
Hydration is something that's often overlooked. And when we're not eating a lot, oftentimes we're not drinking a lot. And dehydration can amplify many uncomfortable side effects, such as nausea, fatigue, um, makes you feel lightheaded, unstable. And to remember that fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature. This includes water, milk, sports drinks. Um, a general guideline is most people need about 64 to 80 ounces of fluid a day. And treatments such as radiation can actually increase your fluid needs. So talk with your healthcare team, again, to understand what your needs are. Um, if you're troubled with swallowing, Again, talk with your team sooner than later. If you're coughing or choking or something feels like it's stuck, they can help you with finding ways to improve your tolerance to your diet. Um, in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to helping you during your treatment. And reach out to them, utilize them, let them know as soon as you can. Um, thanks for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was wonderful and, and really very helpful because because taking in food and and, and adequate uh, hydration and fluid is so important, and you really make it sound very doable. So thank you so much for for your presentation. And I know there'll be questions to you always during the Q and A. And our next speaker is Mr. Wynn Burkle. Mr. Burkle is an oncology social worker. He's director of social service, Long Island office, and he's our lung cancer program coordinator at Cancer Care. And he'll be discussing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Burkle. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm sure most of us remember the time we moved into our first new home or even our last new home. And I'm sure most of us wondered how we were ever going to find our way in this new community or neighborhood. Many of us were fortunate enough to get a visit from the welcome wagon or maybe a very helpful neighbor who helped us find the nearest supermarket, service station, house of worship, school, and all the other services so essential to support our daily life. The more things we were able to connect to in our new neighborhood, the more we felt that we had things under control. Being diagnosed with lung cancer is in some ways very much like moving into a new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is and what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Fortunately, Cancer Care serves in the role of that good neighbor who is there to help you find your way in this strange new place. Here's how. Cancer Care's user-friendly website, www.cancercare.org, in addition to providing a wealth of cancer information and topics, serves as a convenient entry point to connect with the many services which Cancer Care makes available free of charge for lung cancer patients and those who care for them. These services include things such as education and a wide range of supportive services. Let's look at these services in a bit more detail. Cancer Care's educational program reaches out to include its array of Connect Education workshops, which provide information on coping with the physical and emotional impact of cancer, such as today's workshop, as well as informative workshops on diagnostic-specific cancer topics. Replays of these workshops are available both online at Cancer Care's website, www.cancercare.org, and via your phone. Many folks find it convenient to download these replays to their iPods and MP3 players. 
And while we're talking about personal electronics, if you have an iPhone, do check out the Cancer Care Meditation app, which features guided meditation sessions and inspirational talks, as well as 100 free hours of beautiful, soothing music and natural sounds to address the needs of people with cancer. Check it out at the App Store. The education program also provides Cancer Care's well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets, which are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. Over the years, we've distributed millions of these very popular publications. While one is at our, at our website, they can also sign up for Cancer Care's popular free e-newsletter or catch up with our latest informative CopeLink blogs. Cancer Care's support services are provided by its professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers who are there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of lung cancer. These issues may include assistance with emotional issues in which they assess clients and provide appropriate, helpful psychosocial interventions, assistance with practical issues such as financial assistance through Cancer Care's limited financial assistance program and referrals to the Cancer Care Copay Assistance Foundation and other financial assistance resources. Uh, assistance with resource finding in which our social workers refer folks to the many organizations and agencies established to help cancer patients. Assistance in navigating the system in which cancer care social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the new relationships involved in their health care. Assistance with communications in which our workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about their new situation. Cancer care social workers provide this assistance in a variety of friendly settings, such as at Cancer Care's national office and its regional offices in the tri-state New York metropolitan area, where folks can receive individual and group counseling face-to-face or over the phone where people from across the nation can find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care Helpline at 1-800-813-HOPE, H-O-P-E, and longer-term assistance through individual telephone counseling with a Cancer Care social worker, as well as connecting with other people in professionally facilitated telephone support groups. And, of course, online, where people from across the country share concerns in professionally-led oncology support groups, which are available 24-7 for participation. Our popular support groups, whether for patient or caregiver, and whether they're experienced in face-to-face, online, or telephone modalities, provide the group member with a safe place to share the burdens, feelings, and stress with others who are involved in a very similar situation. There's no need to explain yourself in a support group. They know what you're talking about. Group members share helpful tips and information on how best to cope with the experience of lung cancer. So many of our support group members talk about belonging to that special family which helps them live with lung cancer each day. The professional facilitator skills of Cancer Care's oncology social workers ensure that each support group is maintained as a special place for each and every member. Call us today to learn more about this wonderful resource. 
You know, I'm sure none of us ever expected to find ourselves moved to the neighborhood of lung cancer. But now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care, like the good neighbor, is there with you. Connect with us at www.cancercare.org or by calling us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you. Well, thank you, Wynn. That was wonderful. And um, now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Sonia if she could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And please bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to be respond from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if to ask a question, please press star, then one. And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, and so I'm going to give this question to um, Dr. Lee. So this is a question, if you could address this. It's a personal question, if you could address it in a general way, Dr. Lee. Do you ever go into remission with lung cancer and COPD? Yes, the uh, the term remission is kind of a loose term. It's it's not a medical term in solid tumor oncology. In in uh, leukemias and hematologic cancers, there is a strict definition for remission. But in solid tumors, we often say remission when the cancer is responding, so shrinking, uh, or even when the cancer has uh, is controlled uh, with stable disease over the long term. We sometimes uh, some patients uh, can associate that with remission. So it's a fairly loose term. Um, uh, and in, if you have a complete response, disappearance of all cancers, uh, uh, then certainly that's analogous to a remission. Um, and they're probably a closer to the original definition of remission in hematologic terms. Uh, so it's a loose term in solid tumor, not commonly, uh, not uh, medically used. Uh, but um, yes, you, uh, the answer is yes. You can have a complete response to um, uh, to treatment with all stages of lung cancer, and you could be in remission. You could you could be in a state uh, where um, you uh, no longer have any visible cancer on the scan. Doesn't mean you're cured, uh, but it means that. Um, uh, you have disappearance of all cancers in in a good shape, at, at a good place, uh, and hopefully that will last for a long time. This is happening more and more frequently with the use of immunotherapy, uh, with durable uh, long-term res responses, uh, and also with some highly effective targeted therapies that we're seeing amazing responses, and uh, tumor sort of melts away. And um, uh, and yes, with or without COPD, this this can occur. Um, so that that's a sort of long-winded uh, answer uh, to a short yes. Thank you. Um, yes. And um, did anyone add anything to that? Okay. And um, another question um, from one of our online participants, um, and this is both for Dr. Lee and for Dr. Rosenzweig. Um, so, Dr. Lee, if you could go first. So I, my doctor says that I will have an operation to remove my lung cancer. Why does he want me to have chemotherapy and radiation before the surgery, and how can I prepare for the surgery? Okay, so the uh, uh, the proposed uh, yeah, chemo radiation is termed neoadjuvant uh, therapy 
for lung cancer before surgery. And we do this uh, for two reasons. One uh, is to uh, take care and kill all the microscopic uh, cells that uh, cancer cells that may be circulating in the system uh, and not picked up on the scan. So this is micrometastasis. Uh, we know that in many instances, surgery alone is not going to lead to the cure. And you have to take care of these microscopic cells floating around the system uh, that uh, need to be uh, treated before they uh, come back and take root in other organs. So the the treatment of microscopic metastasis using uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy or, or um, other, other drugs uh, are often used uh, in this instance. Um, the, the second reason for that to do it before surgery is to um, assess the ability of how those drugs can shrink the cancer and potentially a downstaged tumor from a bigger tumor to a small tumor and assess pathologic response upon surgery. When you cut it out, you look at it under the microscope, you see how well that drug actually worked in, in a short space of time. And that's, uh, that's the reason, uh, the second reason why you give it before uh, surgery rather than after surgery. So uh, it, this is a valid, very much a, a, a valid uh, standard approach to treating lung cancer. That's my two cents. Thank you, Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. That was uh, very helpful, I, I think. And, um, and Dr. Rosenzweig, do you want to comment about the radiation, the combination, but the radiation before surgery? Yeah, well? thank you. Um, and there are some definite advantages to giving the radiation before the surgery. Uh, one is it can help you know shrink the tumor to to make the surgery a little bit easier um, the other thing is the dose of radiation that we give before a surgical operation is a little bit lower than the dose we would give instead of surgery or or even after surgery um so it's a little bit uh, better tolerated uh, by people who are undergoing it and the a third advantage will sound a little weird. Um, but we talked about some radiation side effects in the lung um, and some inflammation that might happen. Um, and after the surgery, that um, that part of the lung that might have been damaged by the radiation is, is typically removed as well as the tumor. So uh, sometimes the, the long-term uh, fibrosis after radiation is, is not seen uh, just because it's uh, it's removed along with the tumor. So as Dr. Lee said, this is definitely a very standard approach to treatment uh, for people in, a, in certain situations um, and, uh, and has been used uh, successfully for, for, for a very long time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and then this question, which um, is for Dr. Lee, are there any recent developments or research with immunotherapy that can benefit lung cancer patients? Yes, absolutely. So uh, uh, immunotherapy has uh, revolutionized the treatment of lung and many other solid tumors, but in particular uh, in lung cancer. Um, the, uh, just over the last uh, year or two, uh, there's been a, quite a number of new approvals of, new, uh, of immune checkpoint inhibitors given either alone or in combination uh, with chemotherapy uh, as the 
mainline systemic treatment option for non-small cell lung cancers. Um, so it, the current, the latest uh, standard of care uh, is uh, sometimes judged by the PD-L1 expression on the uh, the protein panel, the immunohistochemistry. If it's very high, if it's 50% or more, the research shows that that pembrolizumab, uh, uh, the PD-1 inhibitor alone, is superior than than the uh, the best chemotherapies. Uh, and however, if the uh, PD L1 status is unknown or not high, then the combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy together in, in this uh, particular trial of uh, Kino 189, it was um, uh, carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab. So chemoimmunotherapy combined was better than the traditional uh, platinum-based chemotherapy. So um, uh, this this has definitely changed our practice um, uh, worldwide, and 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 it's certainly in my practice. And uh, now newer research is looking at, um, at refining such tools, uh, such combinations, uh, in different even different uh, oncogene uh, subsets. And we're also looking at newer uh, checkpoint inhibitors to salvage some of the drug resistance uh, after standard immunotherapy. And uh, uh, this is still uh, in clinical trial uh, development stage at the moment. But this is certainly a very exciting field, and it's culminated in the award of the Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize for uh, Medicine uh, last year uh, uh, because of all these, uh, the, the achievements from this original scientific discovery. Excellent. That's a great question. Great answer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and a question from the student. Um, so in terms of food, are specific foods that one should avoid? Are there any specific foods that one should avoid? Well, um, it depends on the patient's treatment plan. Are there foods that, um, I mean, excuse me, if there's side effects, excuse me, from treatment um, that may cause um, any difficulty swallowing, it's really what we're looking at is the patient's tolerance to eating and how they're responding to treatment. If we look at just a blanket statement, there are no foods that a patient needs to avoid. Um, what we can talk about, though, is the function of food and how foods work best for a patient. Um, and so if you're having diarrhea, if you're having constipation, there may be some modifications to the diet to assist with that side effect, um, taste changes or nausea. Um, there are ways we can um, try different foods in the diet and avoid other foods that may exacerbate that particular side effect. Um, there's also information a lot of patients are most interested in, um, you know, what happens after treatment. And so um, long-term, you know, what is the best way for me to eat and what's best for me um, to help reduce risk of disease. And so um, talking with your team, talking with your dietitian about that, she can uh, review current research on what's going on with um, with kind of just our overall um, health plan with all the other comorbidities you might be experiencing, and then, of course, the re reducing the risk of disease. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and um, one more question from uh, 
also a question for Dr. Um, Natalie. Um, should genomic testing be done periodically as progression occurs in addition to an initial test? Uh, yes, this is a great question, and I, I would say yes in some instances, although not every single instance. So uh, uh, genomic testing should be done at least once for all non-small non cell lung cancers in, in to guide their uh, treatment uh, in the advanced stage. Um, however, sometimes it, it, you can, it can help by repeating it upon drug resistance and progression on targeted therapy because once you inhibit a particular gene like EGFR and you, the cancer can eventually outsmart the drug by developing new pathways uh, such as HER2 amplification, MET amplification that were not present in the original uh, testing, uh, but it evolved. And you have to repeat that testing to catch it and then deploy better drugs to switch it off again. So you, you then uh, uh, the, the classic example is, is using the, uh, the MET inhibitor. Um, uh, the original classic example is to use a third-generation EGFR inhibitor to block the resistance mechanism for first-generation EGFR inhibitors. But now that the third-generation third inhibitors have now become the standard of care in first line, uh, there are new resistance mechanisms being developed been seen more commonly in the clinic, and if you develop something like MET amplification, you can block it with a MET inhibitor with EGFR dual blockade, and that's the subject of still clinical trial, but already presented in major conferences to, to uh, have, have res uh, durable responses in this setting. So I, I think, um, uh, yes, there is definitely value in repeating the genomic testing in these specific instances, uh, although I wouldn't have a blanket rule of of, uh, uh, of doing it on every case. Uh, if uh, and for example, if you simply progressed on chemotherapy, then there's no reason to believe that there is uh, uh, another uh, gene pathway uh, that uh, suddenly developed and that we could switch off with a particular pill. I mean, that's all hypothetical under research, but it's not um, uh, a standard. So I would say yes on a case-by-case on a -case basis. And those days with uh, uh, plasma testing, this is, this is also liquid biopsies. This is made easier. So often you don't have to wait to get a biopsy. You get another needle put in to the tumor. You could do, just do a blood test. And that can sometimes catch those uh, resistance uh, pathways and uh, and we can switch it off with new drugs. That's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. They have been phenomenal. You can't hear us clapping, but we are. We, it was a wonderful, wonderful presentation, Julie. Um, and I also want to thank our participants for listening to being on the call and also for those of you who asked questions, um, which really helps to obviously enhance the call. Your questions add some other components for, for our speakers to address. Um, and um, I do. I know that there are many of you still in queue, so I want to just let you know that I know we know that you may have other questions. So first line to go for questions, of course, and even information you learned on the call today, or even um, information you may have, you know, learned today, we would suggest that you take it back to your treating healthcare team, discuss it with them, and if you have a question, of course, bring it to your healthcare team. But I know that many of you do like to go to credible sites to get information. So we do recommend, of course, there are, there are four lung cancer organizations that, um, we, uh, that are 
listed and you'll be, you'll be getting an evaluation after the call today. And in that evaluation will be listed all of the resources um, that you can contact to get information that you might would be helpful to you in terms of questions you may still have that you'd like to get some more information on. And we also always call, suggest that people call the National Cancer Institute at 800-422-6237. They also have a live chat feature on their website, www.cancer.gov. Um, it's a wonderful feature. It's good for people all over the United States and internationally as well. And you can post your question, and the information specialist will pull up all the data they have to give you that information so you can get a very nice answer, and then you can take that back to your treating healthcare team. And also there are four lung cancer organizations that are on this program, as well as all the other organizations. Many of them have tremendous information about lung cancer, as does cancer care. And for those of you who would like to seek further services from Cancer Care, please do call our 800 number at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at, at, at www.cancercare.org. And um, again, I want to thank you all for participating today. And most importantly, we don't want any one of you to leave this call today feeling that you're alone. We want you to now know that you are a part of a large community of support you're in a good neighborhood here. We want to help you. And to some extent, please uh, contact Cancer Care um, if you have questions or concerns. Um, and you also have all these other resources as well to, to come to. So thank you all and have a great day. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.